Tiffany. Hey there, how are you? I'm really good. How are you this morning? Ah. It's like that. I've been going to, uh, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so um, I'm actually really enjoying the rain. I've been up since about 7 a.m. And I've been listening to um, some of the conversations I've been having with my mom and uh, and some of the things that I've just been preparing for this upcoming show. And um, so this is the first time where we're not live in the studio and, um, you know, just trying some new formats out. Yeah. Yeah. Tech is uh, pretty cool when you need it to be. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so the first thing I did, because this is Black Families Month, the first thing I did was, I always do this. You know, I always do this. I always go, what are the facts, right? Yeah. yeah. And I found it really difficult to really do the typical internet search for facts about Black family because I feel like it's not going to be anything but propaganda in some way. Um, and like to really preface that, like, there's a lot of things that are always said in America about the black family. And historically, one of the biggest things in my mind is something called the Moynihan report. And it was this report that was really big in like the seventies, eighties, nineties, I think. And it was this white man who had basically said that the black family is dysfunctional because the woman is the main caregiver and the main breadwinner, it basically demonized Black women. Um, mm. And he said that because men are not present in the household or because the woman takes the dominant lead, that inherently Black children are raised wrong and they aren't successful as a result of the basic framework of the Black family. And, um, you know, this now, is, yeah, I'm sorry. Let me, let me ask. Cause I just, I, I want to clarify. And this is as compared to a white family. Yes. And, <laughs> you okay. know, and, and I, I want to say this report actually was used more than once more than so many times. It was like the main report that a lot of, um, policymakers would refer to when they would make policies um you know in the in the 60s 70s I want to say even all the way up until the 80s like this Moynihan report was like very central to policy when it comes to families in America and that's why I don't really trust anything that I would find on a public sphere. Like I don't trust anything I would find on the internet to give me facts about a black family. Yeah. Yeah. It it's 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 actually very similar to what I had I found myself doing earlier in the week. Um, you know, as an educator, one of one of my big deals has always been to center you know, the use of culturally responsive materials in where, where regards our literacy development programming for imagery. 
And I just saw this and I've seen it for years, Shatana. It's the stats about um, the stories that are being written by, you know, indigenous peoples in the marketplace and what those percentages look like. And they're low. They're they're ridiculously low. But then I always ask the question We're we're still talking about a mainstream, you know, in the mainstream publishing world a world that is owned and dominated by people who aren't, you know, black and brown. So of course those numbers are going to be small because when we're crafting stories, those stories have to benefit, you know, those who own it, right? There has to be, okay, is this going to make money? Is this appealing? Is this, you know, is this a variation of, you know, the truth? Is it, how is it depicted? And, I, and, and this is why this show and so many other things that we've discussed and talked about and supported our community with creating is so important. If we don't tell the truth, we leave the opportunity open for others to tell something that is very far from the truth. But the other part of that is the documentation and the need for that. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that you couldn't find anything because you know, you, you create what you want to see in the world. But on the same token, it creates, you know, some discord because it's like, ooh, that's not the truth. There's tons about the Black family. So go ahead. And it's not that I, I couldn't find anything. It's just that I didn't, I didn't look on the internet. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. that's really important because I don't trust anything that someone might write about the black family because I just don't think that that would be the perspective just like you said yeah it's it's sufficient yeah so I was thinking really hard like where can I find facts about black family then if I'm not relying on the internet and I remembered this tradition that I don't think a lot of people really know is a tradition in Black families, but there's a tradition of letter writing. And it started with W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk. And there's this chapter in The Souls of Black Folk um, where he writes about his son. And um, if you haven't read The Souls of Black Folk, like towards the end of the book, he writes this whole entire chapter, but it's really a letter to his son. And his son was born with um, gray eyes and like really fair skin. And he had like really, you know, thin hair. So phenotypically he looked like he was mixed race. Right. Like he he could have been white. Right. Um, And that's because W.E.B. Du Bois was mixed race. Yeah, yeah. And so when he had his own child, his child looked like him. And um, during this chapter, Du Bois explains that his child got sick. And he got sick from a disease that is, is curable easily during his time, you know, all, all you needed to do was have a doctor give you the medicine or have a doctor treat you. But unfortunately, because of the way his son looked, 
no doctor would treat his son for the the sickness that he had. Mm. And again, I want to emphasize that the sickness was easily curable during that time period. And so as a result of no doctor being willing, and I'm talking about no black doctor and no white doctor, because the white doctors didn't want to treat a black person. And the black doctors were afraid to treat someone who they thought was a white person. Right. And so his son died. And that always like haunted me. It, it right. just haunted me. Yeah. Because it's like his son didn't have to die. And it was really a result of this confusion and, and because of white supremacy that his son died. Yeah, medical apartheid, yeah. And yeah. so Du Bois wrote this really just like heartfelt letter to his son who died as a baby. Um, and ever since that time, ever since that moment, every notable Black writer has written a letter to their child. Yeah. And some of the most famous letters includes James Baldwin and um, James Baldwin didn't have children, but he had a nephew who had his name. So someone in his family, I think it might've been his sister had a baby and his sister maybe, cause I'm not sure if it was a sister or a brother, but someone in his family named one of James Baldwin's nephews, James, they named him James. And, you know, they called him, big James, you know, cause he was big and, uh, uh, you know, James Baldwin himself was, uh, not, you know, in, in his frame, his frame was not a big frame, but his nephew, he was born, he was obviously a big boy, you know, so they called him big James. And, um, James Baldwin goes on to write this like really heartfelt letter, um, because he was really thinking about how race had, affected him and his family mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the the third I think really famous example I have of this tradition of letter writing is Ta-Nehisi Coates yeah yeah and uh, you know that book that he wrote uh Between the World and Me right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. first of all he took that title from the souls of black folk because the very first line in the very first chapter of the souls of black folk, it says between the world and me. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously the title of that book is a reference to Du Bois. And I really, I really appreciate that because it, the fact that Tanahishi Coates starts his book off with a letter to his son, it really, it really ties back to that history of letter writing that right. Du Bois wrote as a tradition yeah and yeah. you know some things are some things don't escape me when I think about this tradition it seems like there's a lot of men who are who are doing this you know all the all the examples I just gave you are of men writing letters to their children um and and the letters being very heartfelt uh and and the letters also addressing like family and race, right? Um, 
And so when I think about women, I, I actually don't have any examples in my mind of, of Black women writing letters to their children. And I can think of some reasons why. Um, because, you know, if I'm thinking of like Toni Morrison, for example, I don't, I don't know Toni Morrison had a child. Yeah, I, she did. She did? Okay. Yeah. And, and, and she, she, her child was very, very much aware that, you know, she was engrossed in her work. And so, um, like, as, as she raised him, you know, she, like, when she had to work, she would just be, you know, hey, um, the door is open, but mommy is working, right? So, it was very active for her. Um, I don't believe Alice Walker, like, when you start thinking about some of our greats, um, some of them didn't have children, you know? And then the ones that did, they balanced it to a point where they they were the letter, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. They the the women were the letter. Right. And it's like you said, when you talk about our greats, because Toni Morrison, she wrote these books that are they are the letters. Like if right. you heartfelt letter from Toni Morrison, all you have to do is pick up any of her books. Right. Um, and the same thing with Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Alice Walker. And yeah. and I think I think the difference here is like, first of all, Alice Walker, Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison all wrote fiction. They all wrote fiction. But W.E.B. Du Bois, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and James Baldwin, they all wrote nonfiction. Nonfiction, right. And so in a way, like they had a different mode of writing. And, right. and I think when the women that we mentioned were writing, they were very much so writing their souls, their hearts, their feelings, um, just like all of all the things that you would look for in a, in a letter, they were actually writing that in their books. I mean, and, 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 to, to really illuminate it, I think when you, when you, you know, you parcel it that way, I'm sure that there was, you know, some desire for a preferred experience, right? Based on that narrative. So, okay, the women are living this, you know, um, and vice versa, right? But, but just the way that they actually narrate it, it speaks volumes about, you know, their desire narrative right reality versus not so that's another point um because i love that you started with that these are all men because that's critical it's very very important to highlight that they were all men and freely able to express themselves with this medium you know um yeah yeah it says a lot it does and and then the thing about the women that we just mentioned is that the stories that they have to tell are so nuanced. And right. the things that they have to say are so nuanced. Whereas like, you know, Du Bois and Ta-Nehisi Coates and James Baldwin, it's like they could say what they had to say and they could say it very directly. And there were very few nuances that you really had to like, had to have a lot of experience to pick up on. Like, right. 
you can read James Baldwin and get all the intention and the feeling from what he's saying. Absolutely. Like with Toni Morrison, you have to sit with her. Oh. Think, and you have to reread and you have to, you know, it just takes more intention and involvement to really, really understand what she's saying. Right. Totally. It's cerebral. And it's indicative of, again, their lived experiences and, and their preference and how they wanted to narrate that, right? Because that's the letter, right? I can't, um, I mean, when I say all of our Black women writers, well, all of our writers, period. I'm, I'm just like so in love with, and I love that we're talking about this letter theme because it's central to when we, t- we, you know, I always talk about storytelling, how dynamic it is, how powerful a tool it is, but the documentation of it and the preservation of it so that we have a genuine understanding of who we are, where we've come from, that's critical. But I say this to say, when we talk about the ethereal, cerebral, um, futuristic tones of the Black women writers that we've had, you know, doing conducting these studies and 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 seeing through the lens it's it's very much inspiring but it's also really raw shatana like it's so raw that you can't help and i guess this is one of the reasons why this conversation is so important you can't help but to take up where they left off if that makes sense you can't help but to contribute to the legacy when you are indoctrinated, you know, by their work as they would have wanted you to be. And again, I'm sure it was just, you know, what they, they wanted to get it out. You know, they wanted to share it. They wanted it to be revered and so forth. But at that instant, it's, you're immediately moved to do and be something greater than every other story has ever told you you could be, you know? Um, you're, you're encouraged to exercise that uniquity in a way that, you know, is dignified and that makes you feel alive and whole. And, and these, these are, again, when we're talking about writing letters to our children, isn't that what we want for our children? Yeah. <laughs> We have to take those examples like, yeah, let's look at what was was previously written. Um, I'm grateful for the lens, for sure. I'm grateful. What I, so those are my facts. These yeah. letters. Yeah. And what, I, what I've decided to do is for the facts segment, I'm breaking it up. So, you know, in the past in our show, you know, we always had the, what are the facts segment in the very first show? And it's like, we just completely concentrated on the facts. But, you know, we're on the second season of the show. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, I consider the seasons by the actual seasons. Right. So we're in the second season of 2021 as well. And um, during the first season of 2021, it's like the things that were facts were a little bit more a one-to-one definition. So if we wanted to know facts about health, well then, you know, we can get those and feel pretty confident that we're getting good facts. 
you know, if we just look at statistics from the CDC or, you know, things that people collect. Um, and, and then the same thing with joy. I feel like the facts about stress and joy and how those affect our mental health and, and our well-being, I feel like those are really easy facts to come across. Yeah. And the last one, which was, uh, what was Black Future and Black History? Um, so black Health, Black Joy, um, and Black Futures. Yeah. And, you know, with Black Futures, that's definitely a hot topic. There's a lot of books that are being put out this year alone about Black Future. Oh, you yeah. Know? Um, so I felt like we could really, with confidence, use a public sphere like the internet to find good facts that we could use to develop our meditation on. But this time around, I think I'm going to give us and our listeners one letter from a notable Black person to their child, um, one letter an episode so that we can use that letter to understand the rest of the episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so for me, for this episode, I've chosen James Baldwin and I've chosen the letter he wrote at the very beginning of his book called The Fire Next Time, where he talks to Big James and he's talking to Big James about racism and family and, um, and after this letter, I, I then have a conversation with my mom and I read her a letter that I wrote her um, and we kind of go from there. So I just wanted to check in with you, first of all, and then also to, to say happy Mother's Day. Oh my I, gosh, yes, it's coming. Yeah, and this weekend is big big weekend for me and my family for multiple reasons because yeah it's baby's birthday baby's birthday I can't believe she's one it's like what she's grown so fast I am so proud of her uh you know and and even in as much as that like you know I've recorded because I wrote a letter to Evelyn and you know, that's going to be for next week's episode. Um, But when I was thinking about just like my wants and my feelings, my thoughts about family, it just became so very complicated. Um, You know, a little sneak peek into what we're going to be listening to is the fact that if you've been American for generations, I'm not talking about first generation or second generation Americans. I'm talking about, you You know you have family who has been here since enslavement. Um, you might not know who those family members are, but you do know that your great, great grandmother was here in the United States. You know, um, if, if you're an American like that, then your family is actually not just the black people you see around you. Yeah. Like, your family is are the white people who 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 no longer interact with you anymore. Yeah. And I I talked to my mom about how that happens. Um how do how do families 
in America end up being called a Black family or end up being called a white family if in reality we're all related. Right. Totally. And um, it's a hard conversation. Very hard. And so I, 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 you know, if my mom's listening, thank you so much uh, for having that conversation with me. And, and I really appreciate the fact that this was something she was even willing to do. Right. There are a lot of black people who are unwilling to even talk anything at any length about, about their past. Right. For various reasons, you know, don't feel equipped, um, don't quite understand it themselves. So various reasons, but it takes tremendous courage to address it in a way and still say, you know, I may not know at the end, but I, at least, you know, I acknowledge that it's a thing, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. a big deal. Big deal. Thank you, mom. <laughs> Thank you, mom. Thank you. Um, so happy Mother's Day to you as a mother. Happy Mother's Day to you too, my dear. <laughs> and we're going to go ahead and get into the show. And I look forward to talking to you again. Likewise. Okay. I'll be listening. All right. All righty. Bye. The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin Dear James, I have begun this letter five times and torn it up five times. I keep seeing your face, which is also the face of your father and my brother. Like him, you are tough, dark, vulnerable, moody, with a very definite tendency to sound truculent because you want no one to think you are soft. You may be like your grandfather in this, I don't know, but certainly both you and your father resemble him very much physically. Well, he is dead. He never saw you, and he had a terrible life. He was defeated long before he died because at the bottom of his heart, he really believed what white people said about him. It is one of the reasons that he became so holy. I'm sure that your father has told you something about all that. Neither you nor your father exhibit any tendency towards holiness. You really are of another era. Part of what happened when the Negro left the land and came into what the late E. Franklin Frazier called the cities of destruction. You can only be destroyed by believing that you really are what the white world calls a nigger. I tell you this because I love you, and please don't you ever forget it. I have known you all of your life. I have carried your daddy in my arms and on my shoulders, kissed and spanked him and watched him learn to walk. I don't know if you've known anyone from that far back, if you've loved anyone that long, first as an infant, then as a child, then as a man. You gain a strange perspective on time and human pain and effort. Other people cannot see what I see whenever I look into your father's face. 
For behind your father's face, as it is today, are all other faces which were his. Let him laugh, and I see a cellar your father does not remember, and a house he does not remember. And I hear in his present laughter, his laughter as a child. Let him curse, and I remember him falling down the cellar steps and howling, and I remember with pain his tears, which my hand or your grandmother's so easily wiped away. But no one's hand can wipe away those tears he sheds invisibly today, which one hears in his laughter and in his speech and in his songs. I know what the world has done to my brother and how narrowly he has survived it. And I know, which is much worse, and this is a crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen, and for which neither I nor time nor history will ever forgive them, that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives, and do not know it and do not want to know it, one can be, indeed, one must strive to become tough and philosophical concerning destruction and death, for this is what most of mankind has been best at since we heard of man. But remember, most of mankind is not all of mankind. But it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Now, my dear namesake, these innocent and well-meaning people, your countrymen, have caused you to be born under conditions not very far removed from those described for us by Charles Dickens in the London of more than a hundred years ago. I hear the chorus of innocence screaming, No, this is not true. How bitter you are. But I am writing this letter to you to try and tell you something about how to handle them. For most of them do not yet really know you exist. I know the conditions under which you were born, for I was there. Your countrymen were not there and haven't made it yet. Your grandmother was also there, and no one has ever accused her of being bitter. I suggest that the innocents check with her. She isn't hard to find. Your countrymen don't know that she exists either, though she has been working for them all their lives. Well, you were born here. You came something like 15 years ago. And though your father and mother and grandmother, looking about the streets through which they were carrying you, staring at the walls into which they bought you, had every reason to be heavy-hearted, yet they were not. For here you were, Big James, named for me. You were a big baby. I was not. Here you were, to be loved. To be loved, baby hard at once and forever to strengthen you against the loveless world. Remember that. I know how black it looks today for you. It looked bad that day too. Yes, we were trembling. We have not stopped trembling yet. 
But if we had not loved each other, none of us would have survived. And now you must survive because we love you. And for the sake of your children and your children's children. This innocent country set you down in a ghetto in which, in fact, it intended that you should perish. Let me spell out precisely what I mean by that. For the heart of the matter is here and the root of my dispute with my country. You were born where you were born and faced the future that you faced because you were Black and for no other reason. The limits of your ambition were thus expected to be set forever. You were born into a society which spelled out with brutal clarity and in as much many ways as possible that you were a worthless human being. You were not expected to aspire to excellence. You were expected to make peace with mediocrity. Wherever you have turned, James, in your short time on this earth, you have been told where you could go and what you could do and how you could do it and where you could live and whom you could marry. I know your countrymen do not agree with me about this, and I hear them saying, you exaggerate. They do not know, and I do. So do you. Take no one's word for anything, including mine, but trust your experience. Know whence you came. If you know whence you came, there is really no limit to where you can go. The details and symbols of your life have been deliberately constructed to make you believe what white people say about you. Please try to remember that what they believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity and fear. Please try to be clear, dear James, through the storm which rages about your youthful head today and about reality which lies behind the words acceptance and integration. There is no reason for you to try to become like white people, and there is no basis whatsoever for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The reality, the terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. They are in fact, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They have had to believe Um, I was thinking about like how to prepare for this conversation and I wasn't exactly sure because every month I like review facts. And so I think it's really sub subjective when we're talking about facts for family. And so what I decided to do was read a series of letters that, um, people have written to their family. For example, like James Baldwin wrote a letter to his nephew once, and I read that letter. And then W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a letter to his son once. And um, I think 
this kind of tradition of letter writing is, is good and really important. So I wanted to, um, sorry, read this letter that I wrote to you. When was this, 2017? It had to be 2017 or so. I think so. So for like from for Mother's Day, for everyone else, for Mother's Day, I made this um, picture book, this photo book. And it's full of pictures of my my grandmother, my mom's mom, my mom. Just like, I don't know. When I gave you this book, what did you think about it? And so actually, it reminded me of all the phases I've gone through in life because the book started um, from um, started with with my 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 grandparents and uh, I'm sorry my mother and then it included uh, my grandparents but it went from like my early life um, to the present day 2017 so it just took me through all the phases of um, my life and how I have uh, grown and matured and um, gotten to the point where I am today. So I think that's a good point because a lot of times we don't really think about our lives and how it intersects with other people's lives. Cause for me, I was just looking for, I guess, good pictures that showed like my understanding of you as a, as a parent, as a mom, so that included pictures of you as a kid when you were in school, but that also included pictures before I even knew you. Like, for example, this picture right here with uh, you and um, Okan, mm -hmm. my brother's father. So um, I wrote this book. I wrote this letter first, and then I, made, I, I found pictures to go with the letter that I wrote. And I wrote this letter because I, I know at the time I was a little, I think, I was a little worried about how uh, you viewed me as a person, I think. And so I, I just want to read the letter first and then let's talk about it. So it says, Dear Mother, this is an open letter, letter to my mother, Frida Elaine Ekpah. Do you want to read it? Do you want to read it with me? I know very little of my great-grandmother, except that she was from Louisiana, made a life for herself in Houston, and was courageous. For Lovey, who's uh, my mother, my mind always goes, always first goes to the family portrait of her with her signature striped socks. <laughs> she was the youngest of her siblings and married at a young age. And then there's a picture of like a report card, and my mom. And I'll read this. You, mommy, were always whimsical and smart. Between Michael Jackson CDs, you would play on repeat in your late 90s to early 2000 Impala to the spurious dinners you would prepare after a long day at work. You always had a style and class accompanied by a jokester disposition. Sometimes I think of you, your mother, and grandmother in each of their tasks of motherhood. Unilaterally, the image I conceive is that of a resilient matriarch, stern and true. I recall when you told me that great-grandma was one of the last people to sell her house amongst pressure of eminent domain and gentrification in Houston. In addition, she cared for you and your many siblings, 
during your childhood in order to relieve the strain of raising 10 children from her daughter, your mother. If what I understand is true, Grandma withstood many perils too, including marital marital rape in order to raise all of her children. She was always kind, patient, and giving, and never never turning her back on any of her children during all of her days on earth. With all of these storylines of my mother's, there is a deep sense of despair that has traveled from generation to generation. Great-grandma was dispossessed. Grandma never traveled, never left the United States. You remained in an antagonistic marriage for many years, focusing on your career and children. To this day, you have unhappiness in you. It is a saying that black women love their sons and raise their daughters. I've had a beautiful childhood and I was a happy child. You give me everything I need and you are nurturing and wise. I have no complaints about you as my mother. I love you and thank you. I still remember the time you convinced me that my cherry lip balm actually tasted like cherry and dared me to eat it, then laughed at the fact that I was so very gullible. You did not baby me. You always pushed me to be more mature at every stage in my life, from when you threw away my pacifier at age one, enrolled me in preschool at Miss Tracy's at an early age, argued to place me in private school early, then skipped me a grade, pushed me to be consistent and stick to my goals in life. You never allowed me to be complacent. I imagine that you prepare for me a life in which I get the PhD and marry a well-off black man and have children of my own who eventually live in this house that you call your dream home. In each of the lives of my grandmother and my great-grandmother, I cannot see how marriage or children made that despair disappear. It may be that at this stage in your life, after expecting, after experiencing the heartache of grandma's passing, you think in terms of legacy and wish to rush to make things right before your own passing. You look to me, the daughter you raised, to carry on the mantle of matriarch, stern and true. It is not to say that one day I may not even fulfill these expectations you have placed upon me. It is that I do not want to pursue, that I do want to pursue the whimsical within me. I do want to see the world for loving. I do want to carry on the fight for all of us. And marriage and a baby may not be what is in store for me. I can't see that. Yeah. And then there's this one part that didn't print out right, but it says, I do not want you to panic. And rush to fix the daughter who has not yet met your expectations just this once, but run to raise the grandson from the son from who you love. 
So at this time, Ramad had children, but I didn't have children when I wrote this. I, on the other hand, look forward to our world adventures together so that we can remember Lovey doing the one thing she never was able to do with love, Shatana Daryl Lynn, Lovey Powell. So that's the end of the book. Um, and at the time I wrote it, there's a lot of things that I was thinking, um, but I I wanted to give you this book, I think, in a way to, I don't know, ask for, I, I guess, ask or give myself permission to not worry about what I thought your expectations were, but instead to pursue what I wanted to do. And then I remember shortly after I gave you this book, I I think I quit my job at the museum or something like that. And then I started working um, on my business. So firstly, I didn't remember at the time that you gave me the book that it was uh, based on the letter that you had written. So when you just read the passages with me of um, uh, uh, of the letter, um, the way it's uh, presented is on each page there are pictures and then the sections of the letter are uh, underneath each of the sections of the pictures. So I didn't realize that it was a letter. I thought these were just cap, uh, captions or comments that you were making about the pictures that were there. So uh, what is this? Four years later, now I'm realizing, oh, yeah, it is a letter. And it does speak to some of the things that were going on at that time. Um, I want to... I want to say a couple of things about the um, passages in the book. I think at the time that that you gave the book, there were some things that were going on in your life um, as far as um, trying to get to the point in a business that you um, are still involved in. But um, um, there were some struggles in your getting to that business. Um, but I was more worried about your future and whether you would be successful in that business. So I wanted you to have a nine-to-five job because that's what I have always lived by is having a stable income um, with benefits because um, I, I didn't want to worry about how to pay for uh, hospital bills or doctor's bills or clothes or food. So my concern when uh, you wanted to be an entrepreneur was that it would take a while and in the meantime you needed to have a nine to five job so that you could um, live from day to day. But um, now that I look at the uh, letter that you read, it seems to me that I missed some of the points that you were trying to make back when you wrote the letter. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I thought I thought that the way I wrote it was I thought it was clear, but I see now that it wasn't. Um, and I guess it's a good thing that times passed so that we can look back at it and see see all those connections. Um, when I when I look at this letter again, I think it it is still good right i don't i don't think it aged badly i think that the letter is still good mm -hmm. 
But I do want to say that I, I do recognize that I, like, I didn't anticipate actually having my own child. And I mean, if y'all haven't noticed during this whole time that we've been talking, uh, my daughter Evelyn has also been a part of the conversation through her actions and her words. Uh, she was playing with her musical toy and now she's eating cereal right next to us as we talk. So I think it's funny, like reading this and then also having her here, just based on the context that I wrote this, because I, I pretty much was saying, like, I didn't expect that I was going to be married. And that's probably not the way that my life will go. I didn't rule it out, though, either. Um, and so I guess, um, I mean, Evelyn's birthday is is in a week. Uh-huh, May 4th. Yeah, it's, it's in a week. And so um, I remember reading somewhere that, like, you have to learn to be a parent. And so I've had, like, one year of, like, learning to be a parent. And it's a lot more difficult than it seems, I think. Um, and I, and I know that I probably thought like, oh man, it's going to be so easy to be a, be a mom. (laughs) When you first had me and Ramad, like, what was your thoughts about parenting? All right. So, uh, it it was very different from yours because, um, before I had, uh, Ramad and you, I did the things that I wanted to do as a single person. Uh, for instance, we went on family vacation. Um, I went on single vacation with friends of mine, and um, your father and I went on vacation without you. Um, and we did things that we wouldn't do with you children while we were on vacation. So I wanted to get my, uh, um, I wanted to do travel and um experience different cultures before I had children because I knew I would be more settled then. Um, whereas, whereas, and so I also was told that I wouldn't be able to have children. So I wasn't expecting to have children when I did. And we're very similar in that manner because you weren't expecting to have uh, Evelyn when you did. But once I um, did have um, my first child, then I knew I wanted y'all to experience different things that normally black people don't experience. And that was one reason for the travels, because we did things that black people don't normally do, for instance, skiing. Um, And I wanted y'all to, um, you know, experience things that they say, they meaning that the world views that, you know, certain races do and others don't do. That's why I wanted you guys to do things like learn how to swim. I put you in different activities so that uh, hopefully you would um, like one of the activities and want to excel in it. And that's why I made you run track <laughs> and play volleyball. Um, uh, so I I changed my outlook in life when I had children. It was then that life wasn't about me, what I wanted. It wasn't about so much making money, but it was about making sure that uh, my children um, got a good education firstly and were able to be successful in life because of uh, their education and maybe the values that I was teaching at that time because I was teaching you all how to manage money, how to save, how to make a plan of what you wanted to do, and we would... um, 
um, supplement um, some of these things that I'm, I was wanting y'all to do by having our, I don't know if it was weekend talks or weekday talks, but you remember once a week when we would have talks at the table and you could say anything that you wanted to say and um, we would, um, you know, just have discussions about things that had gone on? Actually, I do remember that. And uh, what I do remember is like one time I think grandma or someone was over and she was like, Frida, why do you let that girl talk like that? And it's because I had said something. I guess I had been assertive. I don't remember what it is, but like there was like a surprise of like, how can you let her talk to you like that? And your response was something like, um, I I want her to be able to express herself. Something I think, like that. I think um, when you when you were saying the things that you had to say, I I allowed you to use a cuss word, not the F-bomb, but a cuss word if it required that that was what it took to get the point across. Plus, you could just say it with whatever, whatever tone you had. It wasn't about, you know, being disrespectful or respectful at the time. It's just you're relaying, you know, your feelings and, and uh, whatever thoughts you were having at that time. And she didn't understand that because she was used to the child, you know, doing what they were told, being respectful and not like raising their voice when talking to their parents. Yeah. And um, I, I I will say, I remember more than just like the talks. I remember even when we were younger, we used to have a court. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I do remember there was a lot of opportunities for me to not only have different experiences, but also be able to just communicate at a level that I now understand not every, not every black parent and not every household was allowing their child to, to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know, I know that I appreciate that. First of all, I appreciate that because I think people who didn't get a chance to experience different things in life and didn't get a chance to like, um, just be able to express themselves. I, I think that ultimately they, they didn't have what they wanted in the end. I know, I know one of the biggest fears that I always have is um, not being able to live the life that I want to live. And I think a lot of people can um, relate to that. But I, what I do notice is that people are unable to identify what it is that they really want because they've never been given a chance to express themselves or been given a chance to um, like imagine and identify what their future looks like. And I think one of the biggest, biggest things that I have on my side is that I have always made plans for what I want for my future. And that was like a part of my life as a child was like making five-year plans and um and those five-year plans weren't really limited so like you know if in five years I wanted to go for example to London Mm -hmm. then we made a plan and I went to London and that's that's really how that worked um so I want to take a a really quick break and I want to come back so let's let's take a break right quick Okay, so we're back. Um, so I guess I don't know. 
in in watching me go through this first year of motherhood, what are some thoughts that you have? Mm, that's um that that that's a good question. <laughs> so I know that you thought raising a child was easier than it looks. And I remember when uh, before the pandemic hit, you were going to relocate to Chicago mm-hmm. with the baby and start a new job. And uh, that made me very worried because I knew that raising a baby in a new city with a new job, without close family members around, was going to be extremely difficult and for me impossible. And I knew that you didn't realize that raising a baby wasn't as easy as you would think it would be, especially being by yourself um, in, a, in a new city. So that was probably the biggest fear uh, in my life I've had for you, because if it had occurred, uh, I just didn't know if you would, would survive, and I didn't want anything when I say survive, I mean uh, mentally, <laughs> because it's taking on a lot of different changes um, at a time in your life when you needed to be um, at home around family that could be available and um, in a city that you know um, before you adventured out like that. So I knew that you didn't realize that raising a child um, especially the first, I would say, five years are really uh, difficult because of all of your attention usually is on the child. Everything you do in life is focused on that child. And I mean, like the hours that you work, the uh, time that you sleep, uh, the food that you buy, uh, the your, your outside interests are, you know, like activities like going out with friends, or just even uh, going to get your hair done, all that evolves around the baby, the child. Who's going to take care of the child? Can I do it with the child? Um, how many hours you know, can I get someone to sit so that I can do these things? And it's just, you know, the, the baby is the whole entire focus, the first year especially. So that was like the most worrisome thing. Now, looking forward... Um, you've really adapted very well and you've changed your lifestyle to fit her. So I remember you were a late sleeper and not anymore. You are like up like really, really early. And I used to have to literally shake you, pour water on you to get you out of the bed. And now you're like surprising me. Sometimes you just show up as a shadow in my door, my uh at my bedroom, and I'm like, oh, what are you doing up so early? <laughs> and uh, so uh, uh, Evelyn, who's uh, your child, solved that problem. You don't, you, you your, your timeliness has um, gotten much better. You are more independent, and you're a lot more organized now that you have the baby because, as I said, everything evolves around her. So I think it was a struggle in the beginning. You didn't realize what was to come. And you've made adjustments, and even your thinking, your thought processes, like your time frame for becoming successful has changed because you want to do it sooner than later. Yeah. (laughs) She's funny. She does wake up um, with the sun. 
she is very active. Like the moment she opens her eyes, she's not like sleepy. You know how you can open your eyes and be like, oh, I'm so sleepy. I think I'll go back to sleep. She gets up and she's like, okay, like, what am I doing now? What am I going to get into? (laughs) And uh, multiple times I've woken up with her like trying to eat my nose or <laughs> woken up with her. Like you used to tell me, I used to put my fingers up your nose when I was, a, I've woken up to Evelyn putting fingers into my nose. Mm-hmm. It's just all sorts of things. And so I definitely, I definitely will say that, yes, I have changed. And, um, you know, I, I can see a lot of, like, so for example, when I was in graduate school in Louisville, I used to wake up at 5 a.m. so I could finish a paper. So let's say I didn't do my my assignment or my homework or something. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I'll just wake up at 5, you know, and turn it in by 10. That's five hours to work on a paper. And I would maybe do that maybe once a month to try and, like, get stuff done and still have fun because, you know, if it's a... If it's Monday, then I just spent the entire weekend not doing my homework. Mm-hmm. Um, but now on a regular basis, I'm up at five. And it's because I want to spend time with myself before the baby wakes up. Mm-hmm. So she like she will get up, I think, around seven. So like if I wake up at five, I have like a five thirty, I have like an hour and a half before she's really up. Because the days go fa- they they go really fast and they and they fly by and I remember someone saying like uh, the first year of your child's life is the longest days but the shortest year mm-hmm. and it's because you never really end up doing anything but um, I've been watching old videos of myself because um, my dad he he did record like the first years of my life. And so there's a couple of recordings of me as a baby. And whenever I look at those recordings of me as a baby and then I actually interact with Evelyn, I think to myself, wow, she really does act like me. She really kind of does look like me. Mm-hmm. Like I had a, when I was a little baby, I actually did have a very mischievous smile. Mm-hmm. And she has a very mischievous smile. <laughs> you know, like when she smiles, she's like thinking about what she's about to get into. Um, and I find that to be really funny. Um, I, you know, when I think about family, I ultimately, I I have a couple of things that I hold in my mind. Like, for example, um, I always remember that, like, when someone says, oh, you're a black, you have a black family, you're a black person. I always remember that I feel in a way that, like, in terms of that like the way that people understand blackness is they don't understand that black people are, are mixed. Right. And I, and I know that um, in recent days, for example, I have a cousin whose name is Ashley and my aunt Rosson got married to a, um, a Caucasian man. So, you know, when you think of a mixed person, you probably think about Ashley, mm-hmm. right? Cause Ashley, She's like um, really fair Mm -hmm. and she has curly hair, um, but it's not as curly or as Afro-like as mine. But I I still remember when you told me that um, your grandmother was a mixed woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to know if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Um, And for the longest time, we never knew that my mom was mixed. Um, Her mother's 
maiden name was Abram, uh, and Abram is a Jewish name, and my grandmother was uh, fair-skinned. I'm, I, I would say, I'm just like um, a caramel color, just if you have to classify colors in uh, uh, black skin. And my grandmother was more like Ashley. She was uh, more fair, um, and um, hair more like Ashley's, not, not totally um, kinky, but, you know, like a little bit straight, too. And she never told us. My uh, grandfather never told us. My mother never told us. My sisters and I were very nosy. So my grandmother had all these old papers, books, and a Bible. And we were researching, uh, well, just being nosy, uh, and going through things. And we found uh, the history in the Bible that she had. And it had her father's name and that he was Jewish. Uh, and... Um, and and it was a very very old Bible. So um, and then um, when we were looking at uh, all the information, um, it said things like she had difficulty growing up because of being in the Jewish community. The only thing, and and so from the the information that we got, and you know the fact that she was a fair skinned lady, um, and the struggles that she had, we we surmise that the father was Caucasian. Um, she, we, we couldn't tell her that we had been through her things and get her to confirm because uh, we would have gotten punished, so we didn't. But that's how we found out, and uh, we just, we believe that um, her father uh, was a Jewish white male. I do know that her mother and father weren't married. I don't know the circumstances of her birth and so forth because my my grandmother was very, uh, what do you say? She's very closed mouth. Like she wouldn't answer questions directly. And if you ask her a personal question, she would, you know, literally tell you to go somewhere else. So we found out and we talked about it amongst ourselves, but we couldn't uh, 100% verify. And I always found that Odd. I mean, I'm saying the closed mouth, don't talk about this kind of, um, I guess it's a tradition. Because, I mean, even to this day, if it's, it's something, yeah, it's a practice. If, it, if there's something that in, in, I know on your side of the family, my mom's side of the family, that someone feels like they don't want to talk about, then it just doesn't get talked about. Mm-hmm. And there's always things that are um, an important they always are important things, right? Yes. Um, yes. And I find this to be like really difficult to, I don't know, just live with because like these are things that really help someone understand like who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I, I understand maybe like it's traumatic because I can understand like, for example, with Annie Abrams, how not being in a married relationship and also are like their parents not being married and also having a father of a different race. Do you know when she was born? My mother was born in 1934. Um, and so my grandmother was maybe 30 when she had her. So what does that make her? So if grandma was born in 1934, so Annie Abrams is grandma's mom. So she was probably born no. in the 1900, like yeah. 1900. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, actually, probably late 1800s because um, if my mom was born in 1934, even 30 years earlier, it would have been 1904. 
and that would have been childbirth age. So maybe she was born late 1800s. Yeah, so like right at the turn of the century. And she was born in the time, you know, where black people uh, were free, but then they worked for, you know, like um, my my grandmother did cleaning. So she cleaned houses. She did laundry. In her later latest career, she worked for cleaners. But before that, uh, she essentially was a maid for different people, um, white people. And um, so, you know, there was opportunity for her. Um, let's take a break for a second. All right, so we were talking about Annie Abrams and she how she was born in 1904 and or probably like at the turn of yeah turn of the century. Mm-hmm. This is your great grandmother and um, I, th- I think uh, we were talking about that because I was trying to figure out when her mother would have been born. So her mother would have been early 1800s likely and that was during the time that um, uh, blacks were still slaves. And uh, so you know the fact that the father was Jewish and white, it could have been the slave owner. So, you know, all of these are just theories, but it it all fits uh, based on, you know, historically how um, black people have um, been treated and or how they came through enslavement to the present day. And uh, we end up with mixed races because of a lot of the rape that went on back uh, when the women were slaves. So... I I appreciate that background and that history because some things that I think I notice and that I don't really doesn't really sit with me very well. For example, is this idea that um, you know people who are who are even further mixed because I think every black person is mixed as a result of the history, right? Mm-hmm. But the people who are further mixed um, have a need now to to be differentiated. And I'm not saying like, for example, what I understand about the story of Annie Abrams is that there was um, something that needed to be discussed, Mm -hmm. right? Like the circumstances of her birth needed to be discussed in a way that helps someone process it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, um, you know, like Du Bois, he was, he was born in the 1900s. Like Mm -hmm. he was alive during that time. And when he wrote the souls of black folk, he said, he described the problem as, Every time someone comes up to talk to you as a mixed race black person, they always ask you, how does it feel to be a problem? And so if that's the way that someone in the early 1900s would have felt, then I can understand that they might have internalized the very fact of their birth Mm -hmm. as being a problem. Like they, they're a problem. And therefore like talking about, um, talking about like, I guess that experience that obviously would affect anyone was just taboo. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, we go and into my grandmother's life, Lovey's life. And then, um, you know, Lovey got married to your father and your father's name was Freddie. Mm-hmm. Freddie Branch. Freddie Branch. And I remember there's a lot of stories about Freddie. Freddie, in my opinion, because I didn't have to live through it. Freddie is an interesting character. <laughs> because Freddie, you you know, you hear all these stories about Freddie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because you always, like, Freddie, according to a lot of the stories, isn't, like, the most stand-up guy. Like, he's not, like, the church-going man. So, to put it more simply, I, uh, if everybody knows what a Rolling Stone is, my papa was a Rolling Stone. He was a gambler. He uh, never had a regular full-time uh, job because he wouldn't work for the white, the white man. Um, he would come home periodically. For instance, 
we may see him one month and then we won't see him for three months. And so we're children. And so we asked, where's dad? And my mom would say, shut up. And so then he'd come back around and, you know, three months later. Um, and, uh, the way I ended up with 10 brothers and sisters is he would come around and then nine months later, I'd have another brother or sister. And so, uh, my mother went through all the pregnancies by herself. Uh, I don't know if she went through all, but I know the majority when I was old enough to remember her having babies, uh, he was never there. So he would come in our lives and leave, come in our lives and leave. And when he would come, he would try to be the disciplinarian, uh, which was difficult when you don't know um, a person for them to come in and try to be the father figure at that time. So it was very stressful throughout uh, my childhood because when he was there, uh, everybody was afraid of him uh, because he was, uh, when I say he was a, uh, uh, he was strict. He was a disciplinarian. You did something, you got, we call it whooped, or now it's beaten. You um, got yelled at. Uh, so we tried to be as um, quiet and stay out of his sight as much as possible, um, which was difficult to do uh, when you have 10 children living in a two-bedroom um, apartment, or they used to call them, um, what do you call the ones when a person lives next to... A condominium? Uh, not a condo. Um, duplex. A duplex. Duplex. So, like, even that even that bit of history, again, it seems to be, um, I don't, I, I don't want to call it traumatic, but it does seem to be, like, a difficult thing to live through. I know, like, in January, for example, we had Jonte on the phone, uh, on the phone, on the show, mm-hmm. and he said... Um, you have to think about mental health in terms of like adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. And so like, it seems like Annie Abrams had adverse childhood experiences. And then the same thing, uh, it's like, as a result, Lovey, my grandmother had adverse childhood experiences. And then, you know, through the experiences with Freddie, um, you had, adverse childhood experiences, but I don't think those adverse childhood experiences are negative. I mean, obviously they're negative in, in as much as they are adverse. I don't think that they define who you are. They have been a part of that definition, but they don't define who you are. And it's the same thing with Annie, um, the circumstances of her life and the same thing with Lovey, the circumstances of her life. None of those adverse experiences that they went through are in and of themselves like a, a testament to who they are, um, and I and I think it makes it makes our story beautiful. It makes our story better. Uh, yeah, the one thing I wanted to say was growing up in the environment that I did. It made me want to um, have my own identity and to be more than uh, you know the environment that I came from. So um, from the time that I was oh I'd say maybe ten year old ten years old. I knew that I would have a career and that I would be successful. Uh, and one of the things that uh, would happen is uh, we didn't get encouragement in some things when we were growing up. And I was told that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, be successful. That uh, my life would probably be having children and, and you know, like uh, having a lot of children and being, uh, you know, not uh, not a successful person contributing to life. So those those things that were told to me at a very early age uh, stuck to. Uh, stuck in my mind. And I knew from that point on that I would um, uh, go to college, get an education and be successful and prove the persons that uh, didn't have faith in me um, that they were wrong. And I think to the most part, I did do that. And 
you know, there's a, there's just like a line of determination. I mean, like for all the things that Annie Abrams did do, she also was creative. She also made clothes, you know, for all the things that, uh, grandma would do. She was also just like, uh, really caring and really nurturing. She like never discouraged me when I was alive. I mean, when she was alive and I would interact with her, she always encouraged. In fact, she was one of the first people who encouraged me to be artistic. Yeah. And in fact, um, she was very supportive. Um, and her, in her life, her parents were not supportive, but my mother was always there. Every, every one of us, all 10 of us, she would come and visit when we were grown and she would see each and every person. But she was there for birth of all, all of, uh, her grandchildren. That's all, all of my sisters and brothers' children. She would be there. She would stay and help, you know, through the first month. So that everybody could um, get adjusted to being the baby, and when she was um, in uh, everyone's home, she would cook, she would clean, she would watch the kids. She did everything, and she would be up from dusk to dawn. But she was always very, very supportive. And no matter how much uh, money she had or didn't have, if one of her children needed financial help, she would sacrifice and um, and and find a way to help us. So, so yes, she. Um, taught me how to be supportive, and I'm a little more vocal, but not quite as vocal as some of my other sisters, and to speak when I need to, but not to speak when it'll make situations worse. And I really think, so if we're thinking about family, like, if I were to, like, define what is family, like, because not every family has like the, the really typical structure, I guess, where like someone gets married and then through that joining, you know, there's a baby and all this other stuff. Because obviously not everyone gets and not everyone gets married. And then and then as a result of like adverse childhood experiences, not everyone has like that, I guess, what do you call it, that T V family mm-hmm. with the really oh, huge yeah. house. But at the end of the day, like the stories from our family are, they're vivid, they're wonderful, they're equally, if not more amazing as any of those TV family stories, I feel. And, and I, I kind of, I'm sometimes I'm really sad at the fact that this culture of silence um, that kind of has been carried with us is, is something that uh, more or less has been in has is still a thing that we do. Like we don't always talk about the things that maybe aren't as, I guess, rosy or TV friendly. It's ironic that you say that because I had a conversation with my sister just yesterday and uh, we were talking about millennials, which you would be a millennial. And we were talking about how outspoken and uh, vocal uh, and, and, and different that the millennials are. Like you guys say things that we never would even think of saying. You bring up subjects that we were told that we shouldn't talk about. You um, travel and do things, uh, go to you know parts of the country that we would never go because we think we weren't getting back to um, our own home. So you guys bring up the issues, whereas we were taught and by habit buried the issues because it just brings out so many other conversations and. There would uh, so, for instance, we've tried at different times to bring up things that uh, were controversial because of uh, things that had happened in our relationship. And I have six, I have seven, six sisters, 
Um, and like when we try to bridge the gap between why one's angry with the other, why one's not speaking with the other, we get into conversations, but the conversations end up being arguments and the arguments end up in more hard feelings. It's like we can't get past the arguments to get to a solution. Whereas you guys, the millennials, especially you, you come up with a sequence of topics that need to be discussed, but an action plan to improve them. And because of the way that we have grown up, we just haven't gotten to that point, even today. And so remember at the beginning how you were saying that, um, you know, you encouraged expression, you encourage communication, Mm -hmm. and how I correlated that to, like, when you get older, um, you know, and it's time for you now to define yourself for yourself, if you never were encouraged to be expressive, if you were never given a chance to be, you know, open, then, you know, I've, I've recognized that it's really hard for a grown adult person to express themselves if they didn't get that opportunity as a baby, as a little kid. It is. Um, it really and truly is. Um, let's just say the relationship between you and I. If there are things that I want to talk to you about that I know are are, are not going to be extremely pleasant um, or it, it may be some kind of action that you'll have to take that you may not want to, it takes me a while to bring those things up. And sometimes I just don't at all because... Um, you know, we've just been, we've just never had to do things like that. And so we suppress them. But if it's something that, that is going to, that, that needs to be done, say, let's say, um, if Evelyn is, um, doing something that could injure her and you don't know that she's gonna, that, that, that could happen, then I will bring that subject up. But um, let's say it's something else like um, oh, something more trivial, uh, but needs to be discussed. It's hard for me to bring it up because I don't want to cause any animosity or I don't want to have an argument. And so I just say, okay, well, I can just live with it. I think that's really okay. So I think that's important for this reason because. Like there, not not only are there a lot of things in our family that you know we don't know our history because it doesn't get shared because like the history isn't always the rosy, idyllic picture, and so just the culture of silence that has carried through our family story, like we tend not to just share our history. But beyond that, even like if there's something contemporary that's happening, like in the moment, like right now, it's happening. Um, there's just a fear of being open. There's a fear of vulnerability that um, keeps like, uh, I want to say not only an older generation, but I can, I think it's also being reflected in like my gener, like the millennial generation of our family. Because um, here's something I experienced that I just, I didn't understand, right? I mean, obviously, I don't say thing I don't say bad things about people. I don't like gossip. I don't enjoy gossip. I've just never seen uh use to it because when I was younger, you know, people would gossip about me and I, it was really hurtful. So like I don't gossip about people. Um but what I did learn is um from interacting with I mentioned Ashley. I mentioned Ashley. So interacting with Ashley 
um, who, you know, again, if you're thinking of like, what is mixed race? Who is mixed race? You know, you would, you would definitely think of an example of Ashley's family. Mm -hmm. Um, Her mom, my aunt Rosalyn is black. Her father, my uncle RD is white. um, And she herself is biracial. And she does phenotypically have a lot of um, lighter features. But she's still very much, in my opinion, a part of my family and is equally as black as I am. But Ashley said she didn't like me because I made fun of her hair when she was a little girl. Mm -hmm. But I remember I never actually made fun of her hair. That was my cousin and her brother. It was her brother, Bradley, my cousin. And... um, you know, I was just mystified because I remember I remember teaching Ashley how to like, you know, how women wrap their hair in a towel after they get out the shower. I, ta- I taught her how to do that. Um, and even though I didn't know how to do her hair because her hair was so very different from my hair. Like, I remember always telling Bradley to stop teasing her about her hair because he would always, you know, tell her things like, go comb your hair. You know, and she didn't, she, you know, to be honest, what I could remember about Ashley is she genuinely didn't know how to do her hair. And I, I don't think that my aunt Rosalyn really knew how to do her hair either. Um, but the thing that I found funny is that that's the thing that she remembers about me, even though I never did it, that like somehow she has a problem with me because she got made fun of about her hair and she feels as if I'm the one who did it. And I've been struggling through this idea that even though Annie Abrams families who, who was Jewish, the white side of her family, even though the white side of her family never claimed her, that was still her family. Right. And, and in the same, same vein, like all of the white people who are in our family are, they are still part of our family. Right. So like, it almost feels like the distinction between a black family and a white family is really very um, superficial mm-hmm. because like, especially if you've been in America for a long time, like, you know, we just went through this, like my, my great grandmother was in America and she was an American. So not like those people who have like come here recently within the past two generations, like we've been Americans for at least four or five or more generations, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like, if you're an American in that sense, then like the white people in America who also are American are actually a lot closer genetically. They are our family. They are our family. Mm -hmm. So it always felt weird to me when we're talking about black families, because they always say, well, black families need a white, I mean, no, black families need to be like white families. Black families need you know, to have a house, black families need to have two parent household, black families need, you know, all these things. And and it almost seemed really ignorant because it, it's like, because of racism, like the, the white part of my family is, is not associated with me. And, and in a lot of ways, they probably think differently and they think down upon me. And that's just how it is. Like the white part, the white part of America might look at a black family and think all these negative things about them. Mm -hmm. Like if they were to listen to our story as we just told it, they wouldn't hear that grandma was a loving and caring woman. They would hear that she had 10 10 children Mm -hmm. and she didn't have a lot of money. Like they wouldn't hear that Annie Abrams, 
you know, was a creative woman who made clothes, they would hear that Annie Abrams was a mixed race woman who was a maid, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, it is that that's, that's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about Ashley. It's, it's not that when Ashley thinks about me, um, she, she doesn't think like, oh, Candy taught me how to dry my hair off and wrap it up mm-hmm. or Candy hung out with me in all these positive ways. The thing that she remembers are the negative things that happened. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what really bothers me about black family because ultimately, and I think in an American, in American's eyes, like a black family is a problem family and in a black family is a problem family because from a, a white, a white person's point of view, they only, they only remember the problems mm-hmm. and they never try to remember like what things were positive, what things were good. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's also the fear that I have for like our contemporary family right now, because it's, it's like, I see a lot more white people entering into our family mm-hmm. and, um, and not only do I see a lot more white people entering into our family, but I also recognize that like we're, we're way, we're, it's like we walk on eggshells around them and we're way accommodating towards them. And, and somehow like this accommodating nature that we have around the white people in our family leads them to have even still like just negative perceptions of us, even though that's not especially like how we feel, you know what I'm, do you understand some of the things that I'm trying to communicate? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we so much walk on eggshells around them. I know that my age group, my sisters, the, the people that are my age group, they feel uncomfortable around a white person in the family because um, they're just not used to having a white person in the family. For, for me personally, um, they're people. Just, you know, we are all people. We're all the same. We all have red blood. We all bleed the same. So, you know, I don't have any difficulty treating them like I would any other person. Um, there are some of the white members I don't like in my family. There are some that I love in my family. But when I talk to them, I talk to them just like I would talk to you or Ramad or any other black person or white person. And I think the comfort level of, of um, the older generation in our family in particular and, and in general um, play a big part in how you interact with a white person. Because the older black people still have that perception that white people or higher class, that white people uh, have more of a right to do things. Uh, one thing, so so classically, today, you know, there's no, there should be no difference. Everyone is equal. I was in the store one day, and I was in line waiting, and there was a couple of people in front of me. And so a white woman came into the store, uh, and she had to do something at the same line that I was in. So she came and she stood in front of me, didn't say anything, just stood in front of me. So, um, she was the, the lady at the counter, um, said, okay, who's next? And she stepped to the counter and I said, I beg your pardon. I was here first. You were not next. And the clerk said, I'll take the next person. And I know that she was next. So I'll take you. And the lady got so offended and, uh, she walked away and uh, there was a person behind me that was black that shook his head and he said, mm, that's a shame. And I, and I said to him, what do you mean? 
you could have just let her go. And I said, okay, we won't discuss that. So to me, that is like that person behind me, the black fellow, thought that the white people still should be catered to. Whereas me, um, I did stand in line. She should have stood in line. There's no privilege anymore. And so some people still have that perception and they treat white people differently. I think everyone has to get it in their mind that you're equal, you're as just as worthy as the next race. It does it does it, it can be a white person, a Spanish person, or whatever. You know, everyone should be equal. It doesn't matter how much money that you make. And some people just have difficulty getting those thoughts through their head. And within our family it still exists. And I a hundred percent agree. And I know that it's a struggle because we live in Texas. And I think people who don't live in the South specifically, but I think Texas is really different even from, let's say, Louisiana or Georgia, because Texas is, um, you know, the thing that really scares me about Texas. All right. So we were just talking about how basically like the way that family worked in the past isn't the way that family works now. And it's like slowly but surely there's just been uh, unraveling as a result of like disagreements or jealousies mm-hmm. um, that aren't, aren't really very well articulated, but just kind of um, just understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and um, rather than as you are trying, as you would like rather than talking about these jealousies these um perceptions people just hold them within and talk about it amongst their own family but um disengage from the other family member that they have the problem with and they won't ever tell the problem um and then when um a meeting does occur for instance People always get together for funerals no matter what. You cannot talk to a, a brother or sister for years, but if a family member dies, everybody comes to that funeral. And at the funeral, sometimes it gets to be, um, there, there are escalations where you have arguments because something happened the 10 years before when you didn't talk to that person. And and so it's just, I think as a, as a generation, we have difficulty... Um, bringing the problem out into the open, talking about it rationally without having um, fights, and I mean physical fights as well as verbal arguments, and then holding grudges for like years. And um, we don't have the inclination to change it. You all, the younger generation, some of you do have the inclination to try to change it. And that's why even you yourself have tried to have forums where let's get the family together and, um, you know, have some discussion. And it's just like a roadblock because everybody doesn't want to do it. And and so it goes on as like this forever. And I think that's the I don't think that's a hundred percent unique to our family because actually I, I have heard that other people's families, they fall into dysfunction very similarly. And I, and I don't even think that it's insurmountable. Like, I don't think that these problems are insurmountable, but 
I do think that the people, Evelyn's pushing boxes around and having fun. I do think that the people who are in the family have to want to be a family. They have to want to be a family. And in order for these hard conversations to actually happen, because you have to want to be open with someone. And um, I just, I just don't think that the way our family has historically talked about trauma, which historically we don't talk about trauma. Um, I, I just don't think we have the things already in our family to make us want to be a family anymore. And in the ways that I understand what makes someone a family, I mean, so I guess that's another thing to just clarify because like, whereas Annie Abrams may have had a Jewish family, those people obviously did not want to be her family. So then they weren't family. And it just simply works just like that in America. Evelyn is climbing. She, she just climbs everything these days, but like she was just climbing her crib. She's fine. But my point is, is that it seems like in this place that we live in, you can just decide not to be someone's family. And then, and then just through your actions alone, um, you are not that person's family anymore. And that's really hurtful. And it happens more often than not to the, the dark brown people in a family. So that's how white families who, who, who are phenotypically white that's how they disassociate from their black family. They just decide that they aren't family anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I guess my question is like, where do we go from here? Because I, I don't want to be in an, an abusive relationship no matter what. Right. So I don't want to be in an abusive family relationship. Um, I don't want to be in an abusive uh, sexual relationship, you know, and so a large part of me has been just trying to figure out like, like how do we come together as a family? And if we don't come together, then I guess giving myself permission to be okay with the fact that we are no longer going to interact as a family. And I guess I want to know how you feel like that. Like, like the, and I mean, interacting as a family, like you come to my wedding, I come to your baby shower, you know, we invite you over for dinner. Like there are some members of our family who literally won't invite us to their house at all. Like for whatever reason. Like I know that, uh, for example, my aunt, my aunt Christine has a house, but she won't host any family dinners there. Or at least so far she has been unwilling to. It's always the assumption that our house is public domain or aunt Kathleen's house is public domain. And, um, and and we happen to be branches of this family that are not only very dark brown, but also have just been constantly been the, I guess, cornerstones of just trying to do things, organize people. And, and so what I mean is like there, there are people in our family who won't invite us to things and it's just normal for them. And I, and I feel like this is the process of how people no longer are family anymore. Like, Event, at first it starts off with a, a baby shower and then it goes on to be like a, a graduation. And, and then if you're not involved in the, in the graduations or the baby showers and the children don't know you, and then the children, as a result of not knowing you, you know, the, the adults are uncomfortable because there's no relationship. Do you know what I mean? This is a way that people don't have families anymore. 
So is your question how to solve that? It's not how how to solve it because I'm not looking to solve it. What I am saying is like, how do you feel about just like this process? Um. So. So. That's a loaded question, and um, it's difficult to change people. It is just difficult to change people. Uh, do you do you just discount them and not consider them family anymore? No, because even the sister that doesn't invite us, she's still family to me. Um, I don't know how to tell you individually how to deal with it. The way I deal with things are I will contact my sisters every so often, like it may be once a month, it may be once every couple of weeks to say, hey, how are you doing? Just so that we can keep some kind of communication open. If they answer fine, if they don't answer fine, but at least I've given it an effort. And so you have to develop what is an acceptable family relationship for you. An acceptable family relationship for me is making sure that everybody is is alive and healthy, um, and and that could be uh, through another person. For instance, if 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 one sister is not talking to me but talking to another person, and um, I inquire about that person, they tell me, "Oh, she's fine." Then that's acceptable for me. Um, the 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 different arguments, uh, jealousies. Um, um, what do you call it, avoidance, um, and not being invited to different things, I've accepted that. So to me, it's a tolerable thing because if, if, if I'm not wanted, then then that's just the way it is, and I go on and do other things that are satisfying in my life. Um, I still would continue to invite my family to the events that occur in in my life, um, but the other thing you have to realize are that there are some uh, uh, people in our family that have mental health problems, and, and they've not been diagnosed, um, but clearly you see the mental health problems, like anxieties, jealousies, uh, what do you call it, manic depressive, um, um, and, and, and so when you invite a family member that has these problems, there's always some kind of chaos or some kind of violence that may occur. Um, uh, you were a child, but years ago, one of these family members um, that has mental health problems but has never been diagnosed got really upset uh, with, a, uh, with a sister, brother and sister, um, at one family event at my own mother's house. Oh, and um, there ended up being a fight and a weapon was pulled. And um, luckily, there were several other members that were able to de-escalate and uh, have the family member that uh, drew the weapon to leave before anything happened. But from that point on, nobody in the family wants these individuals to get together again because the next time uh, something violent may happen. And so, so you yourself have to figure out what is acceptable for you and not feel like whatever one other person does is directly related to you yourself or directly related to your color, your skin color, because it's just the way they are. So life for me is too short to worry about what everyone else did, why they did it, 
why they didn't do it, or why they did come or didn't come, or why they do or do not want to be family, or if they, you know, are white or black or whatever. So you have to get a frame of mind um, or an acceptable level of how you are going to deal with individuals in your family that or are not family or don't have family um, uh, tendencies to want to be a family and do things that families do. I don't think in your lifetime our family will change. I don't know if with your children, Evelyn and her cousins, if things will change. I don't know. And right now, even that is is worrisome to me because your children, your child hasn't met her other cousins. And so, you know, to change things, they have to start communicating. So, you know, it's complicated, but in essence, that's how I've dealt with things up to today. Well, I think, I think that's really good advice. And I know we're wrapping up our conversation. Um, when you were talking, I, I, I was thinking about this last thing that is, is, is a thing in black families, which is having family members who are really not related to you. They're just friends. Mm -hmm. So like my aunt Andrea is a family member. I consider her a family member, but she's not related to us. She's Mm -hmm. just one of your friends. Um, And I think that's been a part of, our culture, like historically, has mm-hmm. always been a part of our culture. Just, you know, because enslavement, if, you know, someone was sent away to a different plantation or something, then all the other people who weren't related around you just became your family. That's right. Yeah. And at one point, I had another friend. I have another friend. Her name is Stella. And when you were in high school, she would sometimes go to the parent teacher conferences uh, or, or with the principal. When I couldn't make it. So, yeah, over time, um, I have developed relationships with friends that function as family. And even now, I have a neighbor. And I actually remember that neighbor's Caucasian. And they take care of the dogs. They um, check in on me um, and things like that. And so, in essence, I have that family, too, because I can always rely on them, especially at the last minute, to um, come in and, and uh, like, let the dogs out or, um, you know, get the mail or, you know, house sit for me, things like that. Uh. So I guess this last question then, just kind of synthesizing the information, and and you don't have to know the answer to this question. Is there really such a thing as a, this is going to sound like a weird question, but is there really such a thing as a black family then? Like if white people and black people who have been in this country for a really long time are actually related, Mm -hmm. um, and not only are we actually related, but like we interact in all the same places and all the same spaces. It almost feels like to me the way that someone might care because you know the black family is a problem in in American media. Like the black family doesn't have money. The black family doesn't do the things that family needs to do. But it just sounds like that's just an excuse to 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 separate people. Number one, and. And then, and then that it just it just keeps on going on and on and on. Yeah. So it's so. So is there really a definition of a black family? No, I don't think so. And is there a definition of a white family? No, I don't think so. 
because as you as you said, there's there's mixing since long ago of all the different races. So there's no such thing truly as a black family or truly as a white family. There are some cultural things that black people do that you can say, oh, that's because your family is black. Like, you know, there are certain foods that you eat that we grew up eating that that we call it soul food, right? And so now soul food is, um, what do you call it? Um, like the grits and shrimp, they are delicacies. Whereas, you know, we grew up eating grits and shrimp. And so, but that was a black food, quote unquote. But now, you know, everybody likes it. So there are cultural things that you can consider grew, grew out of when you were interacting only with blacks as being slaves and coming up to your ancestors. But is there such a thing as just like a black family? I say no, but there are cultural things that black people do. There are cultural things that white people do. And so if that classifies you as being a white family because your cultures are related to the white values or your cultures are related to the black values, then yeah. But I don't think there's there's an entirely black family that you can say is this is the way a black family behaves because we all behave differently. I, you know, that actually, I think we're going to end on that note. And on the end, I, I want to just kind of recap what I heard. So it's like, no, there isn't really a very hard distinction between a white family or a black family because we're all family. And, but really it comes down to the values that you teach your children and the 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 ways in which you run your household. So if you embrace things like shrimp and grits um, and you don't consider them delicacies, then that's in line with a uh, black black values. And so like black family really just it 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 it's more along it's more like talking about what values you have when you're raising your children. Well, I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know it was hard to talk and watch the baby. <laughs> Evelyn makes things interesting because as we're talking, we're also moving around, getting Evelyn. I'm exercising, throwing her up in the air. So she makes life interesting. She does. Um, so... With that, I want to I want to I want to give Evelyn a shout out. Happy birthday! What do you have to say for yourself? Yeah, that's all. Not so much right now. She, but she is turning one, so I want to say happy birthday, Evelyn. And um, yeah, so guys, happy Mother's Day as well. Oh yeah, Sunday, Next yeah. Next Next week, and we both get to celebrate Mother's Day this time. A first for you, and a, and a first grandma for me with you, yeah. So everyone, enjoy your Mother's Day weekend, and I do look forward to talking to you all again next week. All right, bye. <laughs>